All right. Who all started school yesterday? That's fantastic. Before that. All right. I do see a lot of new faces out here. So, kind of tell you what we we're doing. Uh, for the ones who are new, we're taking a book of the Bible each week, and we're going through the whole book of the Bible, and then we're trying to lead y'all back to Christ. So this week I have First Samuel. Can anybody tell me anything that happened in First Samuel? Who? Saul. What is Saul? The king. So we might hear about Saul. Who said, did somebody say David? David? Anybody else? Samuel. The book is Samuel. Okay. So, in Samuel we're going to meet a lot of people, but we're really going to be talking about Hannah, Samuel, Saul, and David. And y'all may have heard of a guy named Goliath. We might talk about him a little bit. So, in the book of Samuel, and I'll go ahead and apologize if it sounds like I'm reading, it's because I am, because I did not memorize all this. I wrote it all and did not memorize it. So, in the book of Samuel, we meet many people. The rule of the judges is coming to an end, and the start of the kingdom that will eventually have a king who will reign forever. All right, so the first person we're going to meet is Hannah. In chapter 1, we meet Hannah's husband, Elkanah, and he has another wife named Peninnah. Peninnah had children and Hannah did not because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Can y'all think of somebody else who was barren, whose God closed their womb? Kind of seems like a running theme. Abraham's wife, what's her name? Sarah. Sarai. Okay, so we had Sarah. And then... Um, y'all can think of anybody else? So, who, who was the son of Abraham? Isaac. Isaac. What was his wife's name? Rebecca. Okay. And then we have Rachel. All of those are in Genesis. All of them had closed wombs. And then later on in John, uh, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, her womb was also closed. So, Anyway, Elkanah would go every year to, the, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, Elkanah loved Hannah even though her womb was closed. Uh, verse 6 tells us that Peninnah would provoke her grievously to irritate her because her womb was closed and Peninnah had children where Hannah could not. All right, so I want somebody to read for me uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Emma. After, after they have eaten and drunk and shallow. Your servant, but will give to your servant a 
Okay, so we mentioned no razor touched his head. Now, again, if you look at Hannah, it says that she prayed bitterly, wept bitterly. What does that mean? Like, she's really upset, okay? She's really crying out to God. Uh, it mentions the Nazarite vow. Who else that we've talked about recently had the Nazarite vow? Samson. Who talked about that a couple weeks ago? Joe brought that up in Judges. So Samson had the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was, you know, was mentioned as far as the, the razor whenever it touches his head. And there's a lot of other stuff that goes on with that that I'm not going to cover tonight. Um, let's see. So, so Hannah continues to pray. Uh, like I said, she's praying bitterly. And the priest at the time, Eli, mistakes Hannah's grief for being drunk. Because what she's doing is she's sitting there and she's praying, but she's not praying out loud, but her mouth is moving. And Eli mistakes her for being drunk. <clears throat> and she tells Eli, she says, I am troubled in spirit, and I was pouring out my soul before the Lord. And th this mistake that Eli made will prove that he is not a very good priest. In verses 17... Uh, Eli asked God to grant the petition she made because he realized his mistake, and he grants or he asked the Lord to petition uh, or give her the petition that she made to him. And in verse 20, God remembered her, and she conceived and bore a son, and his name was what? Samuel. All right. So Hannah kept her vow uh, that she made back in verses 9 through 11, and in verses 28 of chapter 1, she lent him to the Lord for as long as she lives. So. She gives Samuel to Eli, the priest, at a very young age, and he serves the Lord his whole life. So now I want somebody to read chapter 2, uh, 1 through 10. Casey, did you say your question? Uh, what verses? Uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10. Will lift up, uh, he'll lift up the horn of his 
So how is this prayer different from her first prayer? She was weeping, wept bitterly, so she was very, very upset. She's rejoicing because what did God do for her? Gave her a son. Um, in the first prayer, like she just said, it was out of bitterness. And this prayer was out of joy. In these, in these uh, verses, the prominent idea that the Lord is the righteous judge. There are four main sections to her prayer. The first one, Hannah prays to the Lord for his salvation. That's in verses 1 and 2. And then she warned the proud of the Lord's humbling. That's in verses 3 through 8. And then Hannah affirmed the Lord's faithful care for the saints. And that's verses 8 through 9. And then the last part, verse, uh, or section 4 of their prayer, uh, she petitioned the Lord to judge the world and to prosper his anointed king. That's in verses 9 and 10. So Hannah was a woman of prayer. All right, so we see this in the two prayers that she just did. And she's also a woman of faith. So those should be your first uh, two main ideas right there. And then a few weeks ago, Joe talked about the book of Judges. In most cases, the judges were not very good leaders. And this is true with Eli and, and his sons, Hopni and Phineas. Eli's sons did not know the Lord. And they would steal the best parts of the sacrifices. Everybody would come to the temple or the house of the Lord to make sacrifices and Hopni and Phineas would steal them, the best parts of the sacrifices. And uh, it also says that they would lay with the women who were in front of the uh, temple. And let's see. And during this time when Eli's sons are uh, sinning, uh, it says, Samuel humbly served the Lord. All right, the, the second main person we're meeting is Samuel. And then Samuel humbly serves the Lord. And he did his clothing in a linen ephod and a little robe made by his mother. And she would bring him a new one every year at the yearly sacrifice. Now, Eli does re realize that his sons are sinning and he does rebuke them for the evil that they're doing. But they don't listen because it is the will of the Lord to put them to death. So through a prophet, God tells Eli that once his house and the house of his father could come in before him forever. So they could come out and go before the Lord forever. But because of all the sin that they've been doing, um, God will cut their strength off, or cut the strength off to their house, and there would not be an old man in Eli's house. So right now, at the end of Eli, he's around 98 years old. That's pretty old. But after Eli, there is, no, there is no longer a man in Eli's house who will be old. After decades of not hearing from God, so the Israelite people go a while without hearing from God, God finally speaks to Samuel. Uh, the first time God speaks to Samuel, he tells him the same thing he, did, uh, he told Eli through the earlier prophet. In chapters 3, verses 14, and Eli knows that his time is coming to an end and Samuel will replace him as the leader of God's people. Now, this whole time, Israel's fighting the Philistines. Have you all heard of the Philistines before? All right, so this is kind of Israel fights the Philistines a lot during this time. It says that they're at war with the Philistines and Hopna and Phinehas had the view that by having the ark of God meant that they had control of God. So what is the ark? The Ark of the Covenant, it's God's 
presence with his people. All right? So they think because they have the ark, they have control of God. But does that sound right? No. They found out that they were wrong. So this battle they had with the Philistines, they lost. They lost the ark. The Philistines captured the ark, and Eli's sons died. So when Eli was told about the ark, it said the, I got it written down. It says he fell over and he broke his neck and died. But if you read the scripture, it's he was a heavy man, and when he fell over, he broke his neck and died. And that's because he heard what happened to the ark. Uh, also, one of son, uh, Eli's son's wife was pregnant. She heard about the ark and what had happened, and she went into labor, gave birth to a son. And she died. So everything that God told Samuel happened back in chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. And it says, The Philistines now have the ark, and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Have you all ever heard this story? All right. So they placed the ark in the temple of Dagon, and it was supposed to be a sign of Dagon's power over Yahweh's inferiority. Sorry, that's a hard word to say. And it shows that Dagon was victorious over the God of the Hebrews. So that's why they put the Ark of the Covenant in their temple. But it says the next morning they find their God, Dagon, on his face bowing in front of the Ark. That's, I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? So who do y'all think did that? God, all right? So God knocked Dagon over as if he was paying homage to the Lord, as he was worshiping the Lord. So they grabbed Dagon, they put him back up, and the next morning, guess what they found? What do y'all think he found, they found the next morning? Do what? The same thing? Y'all think he found the same thing? Well, this time they found him decapitated, his head cut off, and his hands were cut off. All right, so God's second display of authority was a common sign that the enemy was dead and that he was, and it was to be understood that God divinely judged the false idol. In verse 6 of chapter 5, we're, we're told that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines because they took the ark. So what happens is they got the ark, and for seven months, God plagued the Philistines with tumors and outbreaks of rats. So the Philistines panicked, and they hoped to stop the plagues. The Philistines passed the ark between five of their cities, so they would take the ark to this city, that city would be plagued, so they would just pass it around. And so eventually they got tired of all the plagues, and um, they send the ark back to Israel with guilt offerings of golden rats and tumors. So when they send it back, they sent five golden tumors and five golden rats, and that symbolizes the plagues and the different cities that were plagued by those plagues. All right, so when the ark returns to Israel, they mistake the ark or they mistreat the ark of God, and God strikes down 70 men because they mistreat the ark. And then Israel repents, and Samuel prays for victory against the Philistines, in verse, or chapter 7, verse 8. And while Samuel is offering a lamb for their sin, the, thunder, or the Lord thundered against the Philistines, and the Lord did to his enemies what was said by Hannah in her prayer. That was back in chapter 2, verse 10. And God granted Israel the victory. Chapter 8 starts with Samuel making his sons, Joel and Abijah, judges over Israel. So, have we had a good history with judges recently? So, Samuel's a good judge, but before that, there's not a very good history of judges. So, this plays true in his sons. 
and his sons Joel and Abijah. But and it says that his sons did not walk in his ways, and they turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. The sins of Samuel's sons became the pretext for Israel's demand for a king. So up to this point, we don't have a king, right? So right now we're ruled by judges. We don't have a king. And the people of Israel were rejecting God from being king, and they wanted to have an earthly king like their neighboring countries. Samuel warned them that a king would take their sons, their daughters, and their possessions for himself and his servants. So he's saying that an earthly king is not going to be all that great. Because he's going to take basically everything that you have. And regardless of these warnings, God's people still demand a king. And this is when we meet Saul, like Jada said earlier. So we meet Saul. Saul was a Benjam Benjaminite. And he was more handsome than anyone else. And the Spirit of God would soon come upon Saul. And he would become someone who could lead Israel and also be a prophet. All right, so God, there is, there is a point right before he becomes king that Saul does prophesy. All right, so the third person that we meet is Saul. Samuel uh, marks the change of power from himself to Saul. So we're going from judges to king. And he reminds them that Saul, or Samuel, reminds them that he never took anything from them and he never made them serve him during his leadership. All right, the, the king is about to do both of those things. But Samuel's telling him, or telling the people, that I never made y'all do that. And he says, Samuel reminds them of God's faithful, faithfulness despite their unfaithfulness in asking for a king. That's, verses, uh, or that's chapter 12, verse 12. To show them God's displeasure, Samuel prayed for a storm in the middle of their harvest. And the next day, God sent thunder and rain, and the people feared God and Samuel. So they kind of realized we may have made a mistake. Um, so Saul is now the first king of Israel. And it does not take long for Saul to mess this up. So after Saul reigned for two years, he chose 3,000 men. And he had 2,000 of the men, and his son Jonathan had 1,000 men. And then Jonathan goes into a battle with the Philistines, and he defeats them at Geba. And when the Philistines heard about the defeat, they mustered their men to fight. So when they heard that Jonathan went and beat some of the Philistines, they got mad and they're going to retaliate. And when Israel saw this, they got scared and they started to run. They started to hide. It says they even hid. They were so scared they'd hide in rocks and caves and cisterns. Do y'all know what a cistern is? It's basically the bathroom back then. Like imagine hiding in a porta potty. So they were so scared they were hiding in that stuff. All right. So back in uh, chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel told Saul to wait on him for seven days to offer the sacrifice before they go into war. And this was supposed to be a test of his character and his obedience to God. However, Saul didn't wait. He made the sacrifice on his own. And his sin was not that he made the sacrifice, but that he did not wait on priestly assistance from Samuel, God's prophet. So because of this sin... Saul is now rejected by God. And his hope of eternal dynasty is over before it can even start. And in verses 14 to chapter 13, Saul is told that his kingdom shall not continue and God has chosen someone after his own heart. And this new king would fulfill the promise that Judah 
was made back in Genesis 49.10. Does anybody know what that promise was? Y'all remember that from when we talked about Genesis? Somebody want to read that for us? So right now we have a, a guy from the tribe of Benjamin as king. And it's 49.10. Somebody want to read it? Yeah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All right, so there's the promise made to Judah that the scepter shall never left his hand, but right now we have a king from the tribe of Benjamin. So when God rejects him, Again, he fulfills the promise that he made to Judah. And we all know that who is the line of Jesus. So we're working towards seeing the ultimate king, and that being Jesus. So, And up to this point, we haven't had a king. So how are we going to have an eternal king if the kingdom hasn't been set up yet? So now we have a kingdom that's set up. Now we have um, the king from the tribe of Judah who was setting that up, and so now that promise has been fulfilled. Does anybody know who that king is? David. Say it loud. David. 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 Say it with confidence. David. So, David is our next king. Um, and it says, Saul's son Jonathan goes to battle, even though he was outmanned and outarmed. This is chapter 14 that we're in. And it says, while Jonathan is listening to God, Saul was... Saul was surrounding himself with priests from another family that has been rejected by God. Who was the guy that we just talked about back in chapter 1 who was rejected by God? His family. Who? Eli. Eli. So now Saul is surrounding himself by priests who are from the family of Eli. And do we remember what they, the prophet told Eli, what Samuel told Eli? That his strength was going to be cut off. And that no man in his family was going to be uh, old. So he's basically wiping out Eli's family. But right now, they're still around. Uh, again, they're not very good priests. And these are who Saul is put, surrounding himself with. And it says, Saul continues to dis disobey God in the battle against the Amalekites. So God tells him to go to battle with the Amalekites. And he tells, him, he tells Saul to wipe them out. He says... To kill every man, woman, and child, infant, all the livestock. So everything that they have, wipe them out. But Saul only destroys the things that are not worthy of saving. And that's King Agag, who was king of the Amalekites at the time. He lets him live. And because of Saul's consistent failure to obey, his kingdom will be taken from him and given to someone more worthy. And the fourth person we meet is David. So after God rejects Saul as his king, he sends Samuel to anoint another king. Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and the Lord chooses David. Now David had a lot of brothers. I think it was like eight, seven or eight brothers. And who usually gets the king to be king in a family? Firstborn. Firstborn, okay. David is not only the youngest, but he's also the smallest of all of his brothers. But that's who God chooses. So Samuel anoints him as king. 
and he is filled with the Spirit of the Lord of God. Y'all remember Paul was filled with this Spirit right before he became king? So that same Spirit enters David and leaves Saul and it is replaced with the evil spirit that torments Saul all the time. And so the only way to get the evil spirit to leave him alone is for someone to play the lyre, which is like a harp. And guess who plays the harp for him? David. So David goes in to Saul's service, and Saul loves him. Loves him so much that he even made David his armor bearer. So this is a guy that Saul knows and he loves. And at this point, they don't know, but David is about to replace him as king. So, after all this, after he makes David his armor bearer, we meet a guy named Goliath. Chapter 17. Has anybody heard about Goliath before? What can y'all tell me about Goliath? Can y'all tell me anything about this story? He's a giant. Go ahead, Lydia. Okay, so David defeats him with a sling and a stone. Who? Goliath had never been defeated up to that point. He challenged. So what Goliath was doing is they were um, going into battle with the Philistines. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Goliath comes out and basically says, I need somebody to fight me. Uh, if he can kill me, we'll serve you. If I kill him, we're going to, you know, uh, y'all will serve us. So is there anybody now? Saul, who would they say Saul? Saul is... A big guy, and he's a good-looking guy. But Saul will not go out and fight him. There's nobody in Israel who will go out and fight Goliath. So David shows up. Again, the smallest of his brothers, the youngest of his brothers. And he says, you know what, guys? I'll go fight Goliath. So he talks to Saul. Now, again, Saul's a big guy. David's a little guy. Saul gives him his armor. And he says, all right, go fight him. But what does David do? Y'all remember? Basically, well, what does he do with the armor that Saul gives him? He takes it off because he's, you know, he's, he's basically too big for him. And he even says that he hasn't had a chance to test it. So I'm going out here with nothing but a sling and some stones. And then we know that Goliath comes out and taunts him a little bit. And Goliath, and it, I don't remember how much all this armor weighs, but he has armor that weighs a ton. He's got a spear that weighs a ton. He's got a sword Okay, and he's going up against David that's only got a sling. And we know eventually what happens is they, just, they, they exchange some words. Um, David tells Goliath, he says, that I've got the Lord on my side. Basically, he says, I've got the Lord on my side. I'm not scared. And so while everybody else is hiding, guess what David does? He runs to fight Goliath. And we know that ultimately... Goliath dies by his own sword by David's hand. Okay? So after this, everybody loves David. He's a hero. He just defeated Goliath. And Jonathan, which is uh, Saul's son, loves David like a brother. And to show how much he loves David and how loyal he is to David, he gives David his robe, his armor, his sword, and his bow. And again, all the people of Israel love him because he is successful wherever he goes because the Lord has filled him with the Lord's spirit, with his spirit, 
and he is with David. And because of this, Saul gets jealous and he tries to kill David by throwing his spear at him, not once, but three different times. And Saul tries to get David to marry. Like, so Saul's sitting there and he's trying to come up with all these plans to get rid of David. And so he offers his daughter, uh, Mirab, to David. He says, you can marry my daughter. All you've got to do to marry my daughter and be the son-in-law to the king is fight the king's battles. So he was hoping that David would do that and he would fight the king's battles and that he would die in battle versus Saul killing him. Because it wouldn't look good if Saul killed David because everybody loves David. Um, and then, <clears throat> let's see. All right, so David basically tells Saul, I'm not good enough to be the son-in-law to the king. So Saul has to try to come up with another plan. Well, Saul's got a, another daughter, and he learns that this daughter loves David. Her name was Michael. So he says, okay, well, you can marry Michael. And... Um, and he gives Michael to him to marry, hoping that she would be a snare for him. And that means he's was, he was hoping that now, I guess the bride price to marry Michael was he had to go fight the Philistines again. And that was part of the bride price. And he was hoping again that David would die in the battle. And it wouldn't fall on Saul's hands. It would be the Philistines. And once none of that happened, Saul saw that the Lord was with David and Michael and loved, or he was with David, and Michael loved him, so he was David's enemy continually. So from this point on, he once loved David, now he hates David, and he is David's enemy. In chapter 19, Saul tells Jonathan and his servants, hey, we need to get rid of this guy, we got to kill David. And Jonathan loves David, again, what did Jonathan do back in the last chapter? Jonathan was the son, do what? Stuff. So he's, show, he's telling David, I'm loyal to you, I love you. So when uh, Jonathan hears of the plan or that his dad's wanting to kill David, he tells him to run and hide. And Saul sends messengers, and these would well, not like to give David a message, or I guess the message was death. So he sends messengers to kill David, but again, his wife Michael loves him, and she helps him escape. And the way she helps him escape is just a cool story. I mean, I would suggest y'all go back and read this whole book because there's a lot of stuff that I'm leaving out. Um, a lot of really cool stuff. But anyway, so she helps him escape. And then we see here that Saul's family is more loyal to David than to him. So even Saul's family is loyal to David and not the actual king of Israel at the, at the moment. So because... Uh, Jonathan and Michael helping David, he was able to escape to see Samuel. So we hadn't heard from Samuel in a little while. Uh, so now David goes to see Samuel in Ramah, and he tells Samuel everything that Saul's been doing. And Saul finds out where he is. Again, he sends messengers to kill David. He does this three times. But every time he would send some messengers to kill David, they would get to where David was with Samuel and it says that they would strip down naked and they would start prophesying. So the first set he sent did that. Then the second and the third and eventually Saul 
was like, okay, now I'm going to go. And guess what Saul did when he got there? The same thing. Stripped down naked and started prophesying. All right, so it says the first time that he prophesied back before or right before he became king, it was a sign of God's anointing because he was at that time he was God's anointed, God's chosen king. And it says, uh, and it validated his kingship. And it says, now this sign of prophesying was judgment against Saul. Okay, so in chapter 20, David leaves Ramah, and he goes back to Jonathan, because Saul's there trying to kill him, so he escapes. He goes back to Jonathan. And Jonathan's sitting there saying, he's like, David, you know, there's, there's got to be some kind of miscommunication here. Saul's not, he's, he's done trying to do that. He's not trying to kill you. And uh, Jonathan goes and he talks to Saul, and he learns that Saul really is trying to kill him. And Jonathan confronts Saul about it. Um, and guess what Saul does to Jonathan? He throws his spear at Jonathan. So he gets mad at Jonathan, throws his spear, but he misses. And it says, after this, Jonathan makes a way for David to escape again. So now in chapters 21 through 22, God has chosen David to be king. But what's Saul trying to do? Kill him. He's trying to do everything he can to kill him before that can happen. So David runs from Saul uh, for a long time, and he stops in several villages along the way. But every village he stops at, Saul would chase him, and he would run. It says, even though David was on the run, he still turns to God. And he makes a brief stop in uh, Nob, and this is the city of the priest. So now we go to the city of the priest and we're seeking counsel from the descendants of Eli. Again, Eli's family is still the priest of Israel. And when Saul finds out that David is in Nob, he gets mad and he goes there and once again tries to kill him. And then he accuses all the priests of plotting with David to kill him, Saul. So Saul's losing his mind so, after he accuses the priest of plotting with David, he gets really angry. And guess what Saul does to the priest? He kills him. And he puts the city of Nob to the sword. He kills women, men, child, infant, ox, donkey, sheep. And what Saul should have done righteously to the Amalekites, back in chapter 15, he unrighteously did to the citizens of Nob. So what was, again, what was told to Eli that his family was going to be, that said that, he, that they were, God meant to put them to death. So here we go, most of Eli's family, but one person was killed. They're all the men in Eli's family. Um, so now after we, you know, he, he's in Nob, so uh, Saul finds him again and he runs again. In chapter 23, David runs to a town of uh, Keilah. And risk his life to save the village from the Philistines. So again, here the Philistines are up against the Israelites. And David saves them. And David's not yet king, but he's acting like one. And when Saul hears where David is, he gathers his whole army to go. And he tries to scare the village. Tries to make them hand David over. And Saul is continuing to fall further into madness. So this is all part of God's plan to establish David as king of Israel. Even though the Philistines played a role in this plan, so again, we're fighting the Philistines, and now we're about to use the Philistines to help David. Um, oh, sorry, I lost my spot. 
All right, so again, we're, 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 he's with the Philistines and he's with King Achish. And King Achish of the Philistines calls David the true king back in chapters 21-11. And when David is cornered by Saul, uh, King Achish and his army force Saul to retreat. So they come to battle against Saul when he's coming to get David. And this gives David a chance to escape again. So it kind of sounds like to me maybe the Lord is with him. Is that what it sounds like to y'all? All these times Saul's chasing him. All these times God is putting people to delay Saul and David escapes. So now chapter 4, this is kind of a funny story. Uh, David is hiding in a cave. Have y'all ever heard this story? And Saul's got to go to the potty. Got to go to the bathroom. So he goes into a cave. Now all of David and his army are in this cave. And uh, they see Saul walk in and they try to talk David into killing Saul. But David is a good man. And uh, David would not lift his hand against God's chosen king. So what he does instead is he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And David walks out after Saul, after Saul gets done and he walks off a little bit. David walks out after him and he calls to him and he shows him the corner of his robe and he asked him, he's like, Saul, what have I done wrong? Tell me what I've done. Let's see if we can fix this. But you were about to find out Saul doesn't do that. And then the robe in his hand was proof that he means no, or it means Saul no harm because he could have easily killed Saul, but all he did was cut the corner of his robe. This is the robe also signals Saul's approaching demise. So chapter 25, it opens up with the death of Samuel, which is the judge and priest. And all of Israel assembled to mourn him. And now Samuel was a good leader and everybody loved him too. So Samuel was the last of the judges and his death brought Israel to the end of an era. After this, David meets a man named Nabal. So David's out running. He's got all of his men. I forget how many men it says he has. Maybe 400 men with him. Maybe 600. Um, but anyway, he's running. And they need food and water. They're hungry. So we meet Nabal. So David sent some of his men to ask Nabal for some food and water. But Nabal refuses to give any because he serves Saul. And this makes David angry. And he actually gets all of his his army, and they're going to go kill Nabal just because Nabal wouldn't give him some food and water. But his wife Abigail hears about this, and he meets David on the road, and she stops him, and she says, look, my husband's a fool, and uh, here's all the stuff that you asked for, basically. And she talks to David, and she says, uh, you should not kill Nabal without, you know, you shouldn't shed blood without cause. And, and in verse 39 David heard of Nabal's death. So once Nabal heard that David was coming to kill him and Abigail stopped him, he, he ended up getting sick. And he died of natural causes, which kept um, David from killing, killing him wrongly. And, and it, God actually returned the evil back to Nabal on his own head. And then guess what David does? He takes Abigail as his wife. So in 26, David is uh, given another chance to kill Saul. This time, David finds Saul and his army. Uh, they're asleep. It's at night. And God actually put all of them in a deep sleep. And again, Saul's guy, or not Saul's, but David's guys are encouraging him, hey, this is where we need to, to kill Saul. This is easy. Let's go do it. 
And David again, he's not going to lift his hand against uh, the Lord's anointing. So instead he takes his spear. So Saul's laying there asleep and he's got a spear by his head in the ground in a jar of water. And uh, Saul, or not Saul, sorry. David takes the spear and the jar. And then he walks off a little bit and he turns around and he calls back to the head of Saul's army. And he shows him the spear and the jar, and he basically says, how dare you not protect your king? Like, it was your job to protect him. Now I've got his spear and his water. So Saul hears David's voice, and he sees David had spared his life again, and that he had sinned, and tells David that he will no longer do harm to him. And David then goes to the Philistines, and Saul returns to his palace. So, again, the Philistines are in play here. So, Saul's prophecy from chapter 15, this is chapters 27 through 31. And Saul's prophecy back in chapter 15 is about to come true. David is about to become king, setting up the kingdom that, that will have a king that will rule forever. And again, who is that king? Jesus. David is with the Philistines and he fights for Achish. So David now is fighting with the Philistines. And David doesn't mind this because a lot of the same enemies that Achish is fighting are the, the same unconquered nations from the book of Joshua and the same Amalekites Saul failed to conquer. So now Saul is getting desperate because he's going through a time and he can't get the Lord to answer him. Uh, and the, so the Lord refuses to speak to him. So again, there's a lot of stuff I'm leaving out leading up to the story, but basically Saul goes to a witch for help. And she asked, or he asked the witch, hey, I need you to talk to Samuel because at this time, again, Samuel has died. So he says, I need you to help me call Samuel up. And guess what happens? Samuel actually shows up. And he looks at Saul and he, he's kind of mad at him. He says, why have you disturbed my peace? Um, and... Again, Samuel shows up and confirms the fate of Saul and the start of David's kingdom. So he's wanting to hear from God, and guess what he gets? The same answer that he had already heard. Um, so now the, the Philistines were fighting again. They're fighting Israel. And Israel, or I'm sorry, fighting against Israel. And they killed Saul's sons, Jonathan Abinadab and Melchishua. So this just cut off any chance of Saul's kingdom going on because now all of his sons are dead. And it says the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and wounded him badly. And eventually Saul falls on his own sword, killing himself to officially end the kingship and the conflict between himself and David. So now... That's kind of a quick overview, Samuel. So where do we see Christ in this story? Can anybody think of where we might have seen Christ in this story? Well, everywhere. Look. Well, David wasn't chosen until after Saul. The first king was Saul, 
And then it was David. Yeah. Yes, from the promise he made to Judah. All right, well, let's think back before David even comes on the scene. Do y'all remember the prayer we read from Hannah? I think I've got time to read this. But I found this uh, little thing that ties Hannah's prayer to another woman that we meet named Mary. All right, it says, Hannah's prayer echoed the longing of God's people. They were waiting for a king who would reign with power and bring stability and safety to Israel. Hannah's prayer demonstrated the reign, I'm sorry, demonstrated the characteristics of a world under the rule and reign of God. It will be a world where God delivers his people, silences his enemies, and brings justice to the entire world. The longing for a king like this is expressed in Hannah's final words. She prayed with anticipation for a king that would be strengthened and anointed by God. And Hannah directed the reader toward a messianic figure, a savior of God's people, who would bring justice and peace to the world. Years later, Mary, the mother of Jesus, offered a prayer similar to Hannah's. Now this is found in Luke 1, 46-55. And Mary's prayer anticipated the arrival of a far greater king who would do what no Old Testament king could do and usher in the rule and the reign of God. So... We see Christ in Hannah's prayer. Um, is there anything else y'all can think of? So what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with judges and priests and kings and prophets. So can y'all speak to that any? So say that what? He did. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not leaning towards David just yet. So, would I be right in saying that God is the true and better judge? All right. He would stand before his father, the ultimate judge, in John 5, uh, verses 27 through 30, and completely innocent, but offering himself in the place of sinners. So, he is the ultimate judge, but he offers himself as the offering. All right. So, would I be right in saying that he is a true and better priest? Or how could y'all say that he's a true and better priest? What did the priest do? They would make sacrifices. So how would Christ be the ultimate priest? Because he sacrificed himself as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Alright, so what about if he's the true and better prophet? What does a prophet do? But yeah, he he does. He prophesies. So, how would Jesus be a, a true and better prophet? All right, Jesus has a connection with God. Why? Because he is God. Okay, it says that he can. Uh, Jesus would be the ultimate prophet, preaching with authority. All right, and then lastly, we kind of talked about Goliath. Um. So. How would Goliath, the story of Goliath, represent Jesus? Who would Jesus be in the story of Goliath? David. David. What would Goliath represent? Huh? Sin and death. death. So Goliath, like you may have heard some people say that we need to be like David 
and defeat our Goliaths or defeat our giants. So when they say that, like Goliath does not represent, you know, we, we're starting football. He doesn't represent a football team. He doesn't represent the test you have at school. He doesn't represent um, any terrible situations that you're in. He doesn't represent that. So what we're looking at is Goliath represents what he just said, sin and death. And how did Jesus defeat sin and death? He died on the cross. So Jesus is our warrior king who ultimately defeats both sin and death in his death and resurrection. So that's all I have. Uh, I hope that y'all got something out of that. But anyway, uh, let's pray. I think we're running out of time. So, Lord, we thank you for uh, today. Lord, we thank, I thank you for the opportunity to get up here and speak, Lord. And I just ask that um, you will just allow everybody in this room to take this with them, Lord. And we ask that you just continue to reveal yourself to them, Lord, and just... Remind us, Lord, that every time we read Scripture, Lord, it always points back to you. Lord, all the Scriptures point to you, Lord. And I, and I ask that you uh, just help us to be able to see that in all of the Scripture that we read. Again, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to do this. I ask that you be with each uh, one of these students as they go back to school uh, tomorrow and the rest of this week. Lord, and we ask that they um, just glorify your name in everything that they do, Lord. We ask that they be a light for you, Lord. And we ask that they... Uh, that you shine through them, Lord, and that you'll give them strength and courage, Lord, to stand up in the face of uh, persecution, Lord. And uh, again, uh, we thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.